The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Welcome, everybody. Nice to see folks tonight. So, if you weren't here last week, I mentioned that we often take September and uh, maybe even a little October and we go back to the basics with meditation. So, I thought because uh, a lot of what the kind of instructions you get here at Common Ground is different than other meditation techniques where there's a very strong emphasis on the meditation object. But um, generally, we're working in the direction of what's sometimes called an open awareness practice where, you know, with the instructions, it doesn't really matter what the mind is knowing. You could be knowing the mind's habit of worrying. Oh, worrying's being known. Worryings like this. Or you might be aware of some, you know, resonant emotion in your body and mind. Oh, yeah, feeling sad is like this, or feeling excited is like this. Or you might be aware of a sound, or the temperature of the room, or pain in the knee. So the continuity of awareness isn't based on just the mind knowing one particular object, like a mantra or visualization, or mindfulness of the breath. But it's very useful to know why a lot of meditation techniques, practices, rely on using an anchor. And mindfulness of breathing is one of the instructions the Buddha highly praised. Right, And I don't know what your experience was during that last 35-minute sit, but it's surprisingly hard. It's not hard to be aware of the breath in one moment, but it's surprisingly hard to sustain present moment awareness with that exclusive object, right? So feeling just the ordinary expansion or rising of the belly, contraction, falling of the belly. If you feel it here, or some of you feel the touching at the nostrils, feel the air going in, that touching, feel the air coming out, that touching. We kind of can be there for a moment, but to sustain awareness is not so easy. Why not? What did we notice? Well, we noticed that the mind felt like there was a lot of important things to do with it, right? To worry about something, to plan for tomorrow, to think about what happened earlier today, to wonder what the person next to you was doing, to, right? They're just, the mind had a lot of agenda. And as I mentioned during the guided meditation, it's a particular mental skill, or you could even say mental muscle, to be able to let go of the mind's attachment to the diversity of what the mind might be thinking about or paying attention to. And it's not that we're saying all that stuff that the mind would otherwise pay attention to bring to mind, is bad. We're just curious about developing this one particular skill, which is keeping the present moment in mind and using a particular, pretty ordinary aspect of the present moment as a support. So this is what we mean by the anchor or the meditation object, right? Like the actual touching of the breath at the nostrils or the actual rising and falling of the abdominal wall. Some people feel 
the breath predominantly in the chest, like the expansion, extraction of the ribcage. So whatever, however the breath is obvious to you, then let that be the location where you notice the sensations of the breath. It doesn't really matter. What matters is to take something ordinary, like the sensations of breathing in and out, and see if you can train your mind to let go of everything else for a period of time and only know that. And it won't it doesn't actually last long as a technique. Once we master that, then we can go back to more open awareness. But the mind learns something essential here, which is non attachment to the diversity of life, <laughs> of my experience, right? Because I'm taking my attention off of the future, the past, every other object that could be known in the moment, I'm intentionally choosing not to be aware of it because I'm going to be aware of this one particular object. And people learn this, you know, this is what mantra meditation is about or visualization or people who do prayer or people who do other more ritual uh, style practice. You know, there's a lot of history, not just in Buddhism, but in any most religious traditions, spiritual traditions, you know, of using ritual and absorbing, just doing that one thing. So absorbing or the mind's not thinking about something else when it's doing the one thing. I mean, you could do this cooking food. You could just like be there in the chopping of the carrot. And training the mind to not be thinking about what's next, but just to be with the touching and the movement and the seeing. So it's that particular muscle, mental muscle, to do one thing exclusively, wholeheartedly. And that the real knack, the real skill is about like how to be attentive without being tight without relying on greed or aversion or threatening ourselves. You know, you better do it or else. You know, I'm not going to feed you. Or I'm not going to love you. you know, how do we... Because it's really a matter of like cultivating interest. We learn this a lot, those of us who have done especially retreat practice, because when we're on <clears throat> Buddhist meditation retreats, at least in this style... We alternate between city meditation and walking meditation. So in walking meditation, we might have a lane of you know, 50 feet, 30 feet, something like that. And we stand at one end of the walking lane. You know, Maybe it's a pathway in the woods, or maybe it's like one place in one room you know, where we're walking back and forth. But we stand at one end. We know that we're standing at one end. We feel the feet on the floor. Standing's like this. And then we walk, and we notice the placing, placing, you know, one foot after another, placing, placing. And we get to the end, we notice standing, we notice turning, placing, placing, one foot after the other. And it's infuriating, because the mind, you know, the conditioning of the mind, there's a lot of self-importance, like my life, is more important 
than feeling the next breath coming in or feeling the next breath going out or feeling the next stepping of walking meditation. This is such an affront to be asking myself to just know this one thing. That's why you have to find a way to be interested like, well, isn't that interesting? For 30 minutes or whatever, you know, the length of time that you're sitting, isn't it interesting how threatening it feels to not allow the mind to do whatever else the mind would be doing for this period of time? It really feels like an existential death to not allow the mind, no, honey, we're doing this now. Breathing in is like this. Well, yeah, that's just thinking, that's just worrying, that's just planning, that's just judging the practice, that's having a lot of doubt about the practice. But let's come back. Body, feel the body, feel the breath moving in the body. And to be really like using that curiosity like, can I connect? Can the mind sustain awareness just through the one out-breath? Don't think, okay, 30 minutes, I'm going to do it, because you won't. Just do it one half-breath at a time. Can I be interested in the ordinary sensations of breathing out from the beginning of the out-breath all the way to the end? It's not easy. And if you think it's easy, it might be because you're not paying attention. Like you have the idea that I'm sustaining attention through the whole breath, in and out, but it may not actually be true. And the telltale sign is when you have the idea that, oh, I can do a couple things at the same time. Like I'm aware of the breath. Okay, I got that done. Now I can plan about tomorrow. And so when you catch yourself doing that or noticing sound, like there's a loud car that drives by. Now, again, of course, there's nothing wrong with noticing the sound, but it's good to treat it as a little game. Like I'm training my mind, I'm practicing not forgetting this one thing. Can I keep in mind? I mean, I could say like pink elephant. Don't forget pink elephant. But it's, it's not easy to keep something ordinary or silly in mind. But a lot of that is because, well, it's just habit. And the habit really, the habit of, in um, Buddhism, we use this word papancha, which is the diffuseness of the mind's activity. You know, the proliferation, the, so the flitting about. Like the mind, the thinking mind, the knowing mind, this, I was calling it self-importance, but it's like, it just feels like there's so much for my mind to do. And even if I'm really bored or I don't know what to do with my mind, that still seems really busy. Like, what do I do with my mind that doesn't have anything to do? So now we're giving it one thing to do. There's a funny story I used to use uh, in the introduction class. I haven't told the story in a while, but one of my early teachers use some version of this story of somebody, you know, thinking they were into spirituality, but they were just into having good stuff. And they heard about this person up, you know, on the proverbial mountain living in a cave, the great meditator, the wise sage. And so this practitioner who 
was pretty superficial, decided I'm going to go find this person and ask them to give me a boon. Because, you know, in the olden days, these people on the proverbial mountains in the cave uh, were said to have psychic powers, right? So they could snap their fingers or something and give you what you want. So anyway, the person went up the mountain, found the sage practicing in the cave, and pestered this person for weeks until the sage finally gave in and said, just tell me what you want so you'll leave me alone. And the person said, I want a genie that will give me whatever I want. And the wise person said, I'm telling you, you don't want a genie who will give you whatever you want. You know, it's, it's like a deal with the devil. You really don't want this. But the person was so irritating and persistent, persistent that the sage gave in and thought, well, maybe they just need to learn the lesson the hard way. So the sage, he snapped her fingers or did whatever, twinkle like bewitch or something <laughs> like that. And the genie appears and says, I'll do whatever you want, but you've got to keep me busy. If you don't, I'm going to eat you up. And the guy said, no problem. I've got a long list. So, you know, they're walking down the mountain and the guy's telling the genie what to do, but the genie was pretty quick and this and got that and, you know. And it wasn't too long before the person realized that he was in trouble because the genie was so fast and he he was starting to have trouble thinking of things he wanted the genie to do. And so he started walking back up the mountain and eventually started running back to the cave to the sage to ask for help. And the genie was going to be coming in just a few seconds and he couldn't think of anything else he wanted. So he begged and begged. And of course, the sage, the wise person, was also a compassionate person and said, first thing, of course, I told you so. <laughs> you idiot. No. <laughs> Let this be a lesson to you. That's the kind way to say it, right? Don't forget this lesson here. And what I'm about to tell you will be very instructive. So when that genie appears, you ask it to find the biggest tree in the forest, trim all the branches off, take that big, long pole, because the branches have been cut off, plant it or push it down in the middle of a big, empty field, and run up to the top, and then down to the bottom, then up to the top, and down to the bottom. The guy didn't understand it at all, but it was he had no time. He turned around, the genie was ready to eat him up because it had been a while since he told him to do something. And he told the genie to do exactly what the sage said. So the genie did, you know, found the biggest tree in the forest, took all the branches off on a big empty field, put the big tree down in the middle of the big empty field, started running up and down, up and down, up and down for weeks and months and years and a couple of decades. And finally, the genie found the guy and said, you know, I'm happy just to lean against that big pole in the field. And if you ever need anything, you just, you know where I'm at. If you don't need anything, I'll just be fine sitting there against that pole in the middle of the big empty field. And they lived happily ever after. (laughs) And you kind of probably get the sense that the genie is just some aspect of the mind, right? The doing mind. And it's, you know, useful, I guess, in terms of survival and maybe a few other things. And it also is quite capable of driving us crazy and driving the people we live with crazy. So we often medicate the genie with TV and alcohol and drugs and 
gossip and other sort of endless activities, but it might be better to give it something very simple to do. And this practice of being with the body or being with the breath or being with hearing or walking as an exclusive object of awareness is very useful skill for the genie, for the mind to learn. Because then when it doesn't actually have to think or plan or worry or do, then that part of the mind knows what to do. Oh yeah, sitting's like this. Breathing in's like this. Breathing out is like this. Because otherwise the mind will find things to worry about, things to plan, things to compare, to judge, old wounds. You know, it's like we, as a kid, maybe even as adults, we pick our scabs, right? But it's like we do that emotionally all the time. Okay, what old wound can I bring to mind? Something somebody did. Or, or you know, we just bring something from the recent news that really made us mad. Okay, I'll bring that to mind. Oh, yeah, I can't believe that guy said that. Or that politician did that. You know, it's like we are addicted to drama. The mind, this part of the mind is addicted to drama. And it will have its way. It will find something to obsess about, to worry about, to plan about, to want, to not want. I had a funny story. A good friend of mine back when I, in college and after college, we lived together. And we did a lot of backpacking in my 20s together. And uh, he had a mother who was like super, super, super organized to the nth degree. And, you know, it was basically a nice childhood, but she was a little intense. And, uh, and then once we were going to go backpacking with this good friend of mine and his brother and uh, and they were, you know, it was going to be a long trip, a couple of months, where we can do lots of backpacking up in Alaska and out west. And uh, yeah, we were going to drive across the country, and because uh, he lived on the east coast. And as you know, the mom was saying, like, "Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do that?" And just like one thing after another, and then finally the mother says, "Well, what happens if the car doesn't start?" <laughs> In the morning, it was like, you know, it's like making up stuff to be worried about. And this is uh, just an example of our minds. It's like, you know, what happens if I don't breathe in the next moment? You know? Or what happens if Mark never stops talking? (laughs) Or whatever, you know? What we speculate about. So this... You know, establishing mindfulness to the fore, realizing that the mind can connect with the present moment. And the thing about a moment of awareness connecting with things as they are, hearing is being known or feeling the body sitting is being known, that's sort of a, not sort of, that's a moment that's not dependent on the mind defining the experience, right? It's, it's like a, when we're aware, whatever it is, like just touching your hand or touching something with your hand now, and then we, we're just 
aiming the attention to that experience of touch. Right, so that moment of knowing touch, everyone there with your own experience? Right, so it's sort of not dependent on anything. You don't need to evaluate that touching as being good or bad, or you don't have to describe it. You don't need to label the experience. The touching stands alone. So it's kind of an affront. Any moment of awareness, any moment of contact, we say in Buddhism, opening to Dhamma or Dharma, the way it is. Not the abstraction, not our concept or our our idea about what's happening now, but just seeing is seeing, hearing's hearing, touching's touching, thinking's just a thought, being known. So the mind not confused by content, by concept, right? There's a little taste of freedom in any moment of awareness. And when we can sustain that present moment awareness, it's a real affront to how the mind normally operates dependent on our thoughts about things. It's a direct challenge. That's why it's so useful to develop the habit. And we can do it all day long, right? Like I mentioned earlier, you can do it all day long by being aware of your breath, for example, or being aware aware of the body. But you can also just be aware of whatever the activity is. So as you're reaching the turn on the light switch, you don't, a lot of those moments when you're reaching for a glass or reaching to turn on the light or whatever the physical thing you're doing in that moment, there's nothing you really need to be doing with your thinking mind. So you don't, you can just do that physical activity with awareness. You can be intimate with the reaching or with the stepping or with the breathing in or with the hearing or with the seeing. Just in moments. And that's those are moments we call contact. And every once in a while you'll be able then to be curious about sustaining the present moment awareness beyond that initial moment of contact. Oh, this is being known. It's just this being known. And then sustaining, oh, now this is being known and this is being known, right? And it's a real vacation. It may be a two-second vacation or a 10-second vacation or a one-tenth of a second vacation from what is mostly the oppressive activity of the thinking mind. Now, remember, thinking mind is not in itself oppressive. But the part of the mind that identifies with the thinking mind, that takes it personally, that clings to thoughts or the meaning that thoughts construct, that's what causes the oppressiveness, not thoughts. It's really important that we don't misunderstand this point because we'll turn thinking into something bad and then we'll think about not thinking. It gets really crazy. Thinking is nature. Just like seeing and hearing and sensing the sensations in the body is nature and smelling and tasting is nature. Thinking, that's just what that part of the mind does. It thinks. And we give it permission to do whatever it's doing. 
but we can train the mind not to be dependent on it. And this brings me to that point I mentioned earlier that, and we'll get there next week, I'll, I'll keep working on these instructions, and some of you, I think, were in the Buddhist studies class that we did this summer where we went through the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness of breathing. We won't go into as much depth as we did during the Monday night Buddhist studies class, but all those talks are online. You can listen to um, on our website. I'll get that out for everyone on our... Um, I don't forget where Gabe has the information on the weekly practice groups where you can read a little bit if you want to read about these instructions. But in any case, where we're moving with the instructions is even though we'll be attentive, aware of breathing in and aware of breathing out, you'll notice everything else happening in the present moment, including thinking, kind of in the periphery or in the background. Right? So we'll start training with an exclusive, 100% wholehearted attention to the breath. But then once that muscle gets some momentum, then will relax the exclusiveness of the attention with the breath so that there will be more of an inclusive feel. We're still aware of breathing in, aware of the sensations of breathing out. (coughs) But we're also noticing in the background sounds being heard, thoughts being thought, seeing being seen, sights being seen, right? Because the mind can learn to be more relaxed because being exclusive with the breath takes a little bit of tension, not a lot, but I'm interested just in the breath. So it's like putting blinders. No, no, I just want to be, I just want to feel the next breath. I just want to feel the next out breath. Just want to know the next in breath. So that's a little bit like blinders, but then we get some momentum, we take the blinders off. And we realize what's always true, which is the mind has six sense gates, six ways that it's sensitive. It's sensitive to mental activity. It's sensitive to sight and sound and smell and touch and taste. Right. So these are the six things the mind is sensitive to. So even though we're using the anchor because it really helps with the continuity of awareness, because when my mind starts to get lost in thought, Wisdom will notice, you know what? I forgot. I'm not, I'm not aware of the breath anymore. So I must have lost the thread of the present moment. I'm absorbed in the thought, which means I'm not aware that thinking is happening. That's what I mean by being lost in thought. It's when there's thinking, but there's no part of the mind that knows that thinking's happening. Now, doesn't that describe most of the day? We're thinking but we're not aware that we're thinking. So that's never mindfulness. That's called being distracted or lost in thought. And it was recent, one of our recent great teachers who's dead now, um, Ajahn Buddhadasa, this wonderful Thai Buddhist monk meditation teacher. He died in the 90s, I think. Um, But he trained a number of Westerners. And a lot of people have practiced that Swan Mok, this center in uh, southern Thailand. They have a 10-day retreat every month. A lot of Westerners go there for those retreats. Some of you know Santi Caro. He has a place in southwestern Wisconsin, a really beautiful retreat place. 
uh, you can go to. He's got some cabins you can practice at. He comes here and teaches every January. He'll come again this January. But anyway, he was a monk in Thailand with Ajahn Buddhadasa. But Ajahn Buddhadasa was asked once to sort of characterize sort of an ordinary human being. Like if you were going to sum up an ordinary human being, what would you say about him? He lost in thought. That's an ordinary, ordinary human being. is someone who spends most of their life lost in thought, meaning they're thinking but they're not. There's no wisdom present in that moment or in those moments. Oh yeah, just thought, just thinking happening. Thinking's being known. So we'll move to that more open awareness, but we're going to start with an exclusive attention with the breath. And we're going to, in the next few weeks, really train like opening up awareness, but not, but continuing with the thread of remembering that breathing in is happening or breathing out is happening. Because it will be used by the mind to notice when the mind is no longer aware of the present moment. And we'll know that because the mind is no longer aware of the breath. So we're going to cultivate the breath as a probably the most important friend we'll ever have. Awareness of the breath, that habit as a most important habit. Because it's going to be the thread or the way back to being in the present moment. And when we're not in the present moment, this is another provocative statement from the Buddha. He says, it's as if we're already dead. right? Because being lost in thought is a lot like being on autopilot. We're not an actual functioning human being. I mean, it seems like we are, but we're just on autopilot. It's just habit energies playing themselves out. And one of the habit energies is the thought, I'm doing this. I'm living my life. But that's just a habit. That's not actually, in a sense, you or me or wisdom. Because there's really no creativity when it's just habit energy doing what habit energy does. That's why life seems so flat a lot of the time. And that's why we're so dependent on exciting experiences, you know, like some interesting TV show or some interesting news, or some interesting conversation with a friend. Because the present moment just doesn't feel like much. Because we're not connecting with the present moment, we're connecting with our thoughts of the present moment. And those thoughts have gotten old. Because they're just riffs on thoughts we've already had. Just some different angle on a thought we've had many times before. So although there's a lot of pushback in being in the present moment from our minds, it's really the direction, in the direction of feeling alive, feeling really energized. I often use the word wild. It's like recognizing this part of our existence that's quite wild, unknowable. Because that's what the present moment It has that sense. So like when we initially, when I mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago, like, oh, just be aware of your hand touching whatever it's touching. And wasn't the, for many of us, the initial 
response in her mind was, oh, this is so stupid. Right? It's really hard to connect with something simple like touch. Or it would have been worse if I said, okay, you know, we're all wearing something on our upper body. So feel that contact, your shirt or whatever you're wearing, touching the back of your shoulder, the back of your right shoulder, right? And one of the first things we said, well, nothing much happening. But what's it like to be really intimate, really curious, and sustaining awareness with that? We really feel like we're going to lose something, like our life. But in Buddhist terms, we're losing delusion. We're losing the addiction, the dependence on the story. And we're going through a wormhole into the present moment, which is unknowable. And it bothers the ego, because the ego has gotten very used to things being defined and predictable. And you'll find that in different times, in different ways, you find a powerful resistance to just being with the breath or just being with the present moment. And that's a good sign, right? Because what we're doing is radical. It's really radical. Now, the big pushback might not be that there's some monster sort of standing guard. You will not pass. I will not let you pay attention to the breath. It might be just some wormy, creepy little like, oh, this is so silly. This is so stupid. Or a little carrot dangled in front of the mind. Why don't you think about this? Why don't you do this with your mind? Plan this. Remember that. Right? Oh. Like in Buddhist terms, the Buddha would say something like, Mara, I see you. Mara is this, it's kind of like the devil, you know, it's, but it's, it's really, uh, that part of the mind that is averse to being present. All the ways the conditioned mind, the habit-based mind is resistant to just dropping into the reality of the present moment. And remember, anything you can do this with any experience. This is a little different than what people think about merging, you know, where they're, you kind of, because it's very relaxed. It's, we're not looking for a special experience because that would be just an idea. Like we have an idea of what will happen when I'm present. So this is, it, it takes a lot of integrity to do this right. That's why the style of uh, a Buddhist practice that uses ordinary things like the breath or the body or hearing, they're very useful, these anchors or these training grounds, because it takes a lot of the idealism and the specialness that can uh, be in meditative circles, you know, like, oh, I want a special experience, I want a uh, interesting experience, or because they will come those experiences, of course. But the greed or the mind's dependence on them, actually, we get in this place where, because our mind, the thinking mind, is very powerfully creative. 
There's this great line from um, the guy who wrote the Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis Chronicles, the Narnia, Narnia Chronicles. Uh, and he was a Christian, I think. Yeah, he was a Christian. But anyway, he has this line about spiritual practice where, oh boy, I can't, oh, oh, this will be a rough paraphrase, you know, where we think we've really gotten somewhere in our spiritual life lives, only to find that we're still in bed, pajamas on, haven't even brushed our teeth. Although we thought we were like somewhere. Because we can think that we've gotten somewhere in our practice. But the real initial threshold that we have to pass through is we have to be willing to put down our thoughts about things. And our thoughts about things aren't just mundane thoughts, like about what's going to happen with the Kavanaugh trial, you know, or the, you know, vote for the next Supreme Supreme Court justice, or what's going to happen with the election, or what's going to happen with my cat, or what's going to happen with my dog, or my partner, the weather, or this or that. It's even the very sublime thoughts about truth, about spiritual things, about peace, about love. We have to be willing to put all of that down and do what Ajahn Sumedho, another Western Buddhist monk, very important monk in our sort of recent, you know, last number of decades, Buddhism coming strongly here to the West. Ajahn Sumedho has been a very important teacher, and he calls this earthworm practice. He said, instead of trying to be, you know, the next Buddhist messiah, enlightened being, be willing to do this earthworm practice, breathing in, aware of the breath, breathing out, aware of the breath, aware of the whole body, aware of hearing, doesn't matter, aware of reaching for the light switch. But to be in the ordinariness and to use ordinary experience to drop, to sort of, like if I reach for the light switch with enough presence, there's basically no bandwidth in the mind to worry or plan or to even wonder whether I'm doing the reaching in a good way, right? right? Like if I'm so into the sensations of reaching, 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 there's no room in the mind to wonder, are you noticing how good I'm doing the reaching? <laughs> or even to wonder ourselves, like, did I do that right? Because that's, again, if the mind sees that thought, oh, that's just a thought, then the mindfulness continues. But if the mind takes that thought as me and doesn't recognize it as just another thing being known in the moment, then I've lost the thread of mindfulness. You see the difference? Right? One is, it's like I'm reaching, 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 and then a little moment of pride, I'm really doing this well. But the wisdom sees that, oh yeah, that's just a thought. Being known, reaching, reaching. Being known, moving, 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 standing, standing, walking, walking, thinking, thinking. Right? That's the continuity of awareness. But when the mind feels like it has to narrate its life to itself without being aware that that 
thinking, narration, planning, whatever is going on, that's delusion. Because then the mind presumes that the meaning the thought constructs is reality. But what is it actually? It's just a thought. Just like if I think in a moment, oh yeah, my wife's at home, seven blocks that way. And I, and the wisdom doesn't recognize this as a, as a thought. That's called delusion. Because in terms of the present moment, it's not about a wife being seven blocks over there. It's a thought being known in the moment. That's actually what just happened. And if it was like a visual image in my mind, of my wife sitting on the couch somewhere, you know, that's an image being known in the mind right here, now, in the moment. I don't actually know. It's like even the idea of Minneapolis. That's a thought here. No, 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 it's the city. And that's a thought too, here. So we're really keeping it right in the moment. Thinking being known, seeing being known, hearing being known, touching being known, smelling and tasting being known. We're just leaving it on this really simple level. And it's radical. That's why we create this training ground like mindfulness of breathing. To train the mind that it's actually safe to wean itself from its addiction to being with the meaning the thoughts construct. And we don't push those thoughts away because it's not the thoughts, it's the attachment or the identification anyway with the thoughts that's the problem. Instead, we highlight ordinary experience and we train the mind to be aware of ordinary things, wholeheartedly, little things, doesn't matter what it is. But in terms of city meditation, we take one thing, initially an exclusive thing, right? Like from the beginning of the in-breath to the end of the in-breath. Just be aware of that touching, if that's how you like to be aware of the breath. Or just be aware of that movement, the sensations in your belly as it expands, as it contracts. And, and make it a, a little game so you're not, there's not too much self-importance, too much striving in it. Just be curious, like, can I do that? Can I be aware of the breath coming in from the beginning to the end? Oh, great, I did it. Can I be aware of the breath going out from the beginning to the end? Can I do it again and again? One half breath at a time. And you'll start noticing the effect on the mind. That continuity of present moment awareness starts to feel differently than the normal mode of the mind mostly being lost in thought. You'll feel the unification or the collectedness. Some of you know the word samadhi, right? You'll start to feel the building of samadhi as soon as you get some moments of continuity. And then you'll lose it. And then you'll get some. And then you'll lose it. And then eventually, if you're sincere enough and steady enough and sit most days and come on retreats from time to time, you'll start getting some real momentum. And you'll start having some experiences of the mind that are really out of the box. And all that will be is the mind with some continuity of present moment awareness. But it's not the mind we know. We don't know that mind, mostly. Some people have bumped into that mind from time to time. People who practice for a long time maybe know that mind. 
But that mind that isn't distracted by thoughts, doesn't mean thoughts don't happen, but it's not distracted or identified or confused by thoughts. That wholeness of the mind, that non-fragmentation of the mind. It, the mind feels uh, somewhat invincible, but in a, in a surprising way. It's not like we have superpowers, but it's like the mind knows how to be present. It's not afraid of the present moment, whatever the present moment is. So in Buddhism, we say it has a taste of freedom. Mindfulness, even ordinary mindfulness, has a taste of freedom. That's why the Buddha says, hey, you know what? This is a little adding on to what the Buddha said. (laughs) (laughs) This practice is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. You don't have to wait until you're fully enlightened to feel the positive effects of cultivating present moment awareness. It starts to change your life even as you're still feeling pretty feeble at the practice. Because a little bit of present moment awareness is a real affront to the habit of being completely lost in thought all the time. And a little bit more feels a little bit better. Whereas Ajahn Chah, another famous Thai meditation master of the last century, he said, you know, when you let go a little, let go of attachment to our thoughts, when you let go of a, a little, you get a little peace. When you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. And when you've let go completely, doesn't mean there aren't thoughts. It means you've let go of wrongly or mistakenly identifying with thoughts. Thinking thoughts are more than what they are. They're just thoughts. Right? Then your problems are over. And that's the sort of shocking claim from the Buddha that a human being, and we as human beings are fundamentally insecure, right? We can't control life, can't control our body, can't control our cats. We can't control much of anything. But the Buddhist claim is human beings can be radically peaceful, at ease, free, no matter the conditions, even really terrible conditions, circumstances. That's a powerful claim, that the happiness of freedom, the happiness of ease and peace ultimately isn't dependent on circumstances, being young, being old, being rich, being poor, being oppressed, being privileged. So I'm not there. Maybe you you guessed that. But I've really seen over the 36 years or so of my practice, I've really seen this movement in the direction of freedom, more freedom, even when I'm not acting skillfully. So it's not even that I'm so skillful. I I am more skillful than I used to be, and just in that ordinary moral sense. But even when I'm acting out or making mistakes, I'm okay with that in a way that I wasn't okay with it. Doesn't mean that I want to make mistakes or act out or be unskillful. It just means that when I am unskillful, I know how to be with that in a way that I didn't know how to be with that. And when I am skillful, I know how to be with that too. Because before, when I was skillful, I took it really personally. And I thought I was special. 
And that was stressful, right? And hard for other people to bear. But now I'm less that way. So this is the progress. This is the real invitation of the practice. So we'll come back to this next week, but we have time for a couple questions about the practice. So if those of you have been practicing for a while, I want to share a little bit about in terms of what we've been, I've been talking about tonight. What comes to mind? Yeah, let's start with Tim and then. Hello, thank you. My name's Tim. Um, yesterday I had a, a course um, at my school. We usually don't have class on Saturdays, but for some, I decided it was Saturday, so I, I should wear my pajamas to school because I'm, I'm dressed nicely every day, so I figure if I'm there on Saturday, I should wear my pajamas. And I saw my professor there, and I th- thought I might have seen him give me the stink eye for wearing pajamas to school. And then I spent a lot of the day like kind of proliferating on that. What is it? This guy thinks I'm a fuddy-duddy now because I show up in my pajamas. And then near the end of the day, I'm thinking, like, can I tell the difference between the reality of this situation and my thoughts about the way I'm being perceived? And I find that that's the real utility of concentration is, like, telling the difference, like, discriminating what's going on up here versus what's <laughs> what reality is about. Yeah. So that's my experience. Yeah, Thank because you. what the mind what wisdom saw was that momentary look, right? And then there was an interpretation of that look, and that's it. Okay, there was that, and then there's that. And that all of that, everything, always exists in this great infinite ocean of who knows, right? I mean, there's just so... It's like, you know, we get obsessed about one little bit of algae in the ocean, and we forget the ocean. And the ocean of our existence is uncertainty. Who knows, right? That's the biggest thing always in our lives is the uncertainty. And, but we always cling to kind of some little thing, and we can build a whole world around it. Yeah. I think Kermit Thank was going to go next. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, something that I do that uh, has helped me, I don't know if it's useful or not, but um, something that I do is um, just focus on the out-breath because it's, like, way easier. And I, I don't fall, it's like half the work. I don't fall asleep. And um, it's like sometimes I can find that I can let thoughts go on the out-breath and then after doing that a few weeks, I n- the effect is that when I'm not sitting, I notice my out-breath, and I can kind of pick up that thread again. Um, the, and another question I had was, there, there must be some link between awareness and metta. Um, metta meaning loving-kindness. Yeah, the heart, yeah, there rather than just, you know, contriving or generating or, you know, ritually trying to practice that, there must be, I'm just thinking there must be some link between awareness and meta qualities. Because awareness is this inclusive quality, right? It's like, even if we're just aware of breathing in, the mind is relating to the sensations of breathing in in a kind way. 
because it's allowing the in-breath to be the way that it is. It's not judging it. It's receiving it wholly as it is. That's not a bad definition for kindness. Like when you are with a friend or with a pet or with people and you're not needing them like we're not needing the breath to be different than it is, well, that's a kind thing to do. So there is that relationship. That's why we do here at the center and in Buddhist circles, we do a lot of loving kindness practice because it really supports the continuity of present moment awareness. One of the most important things we have to tease out of the mind is ill will, aversion, and fear. These are just different words for the same thing. That's sort of being tight with the present moment because we are afraid or we are controlling, right? So to be, that's why we practice with the breath or with hearing or with the whole body. We're learning to be with it in a kind way, in a whole way, in a non-judging way. So it really does have the flavor of kindness. It's 8.30, so we have to end, but I can talk to you afterward if you want to come up afterward, but it's 8.30, so we have to end now. Let's just take a moment, let go of the words. Maybe pass the mic over to Jean in the corner. And we'll just take a few seconds, just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Rest in the silence for a few seconds. Thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.